And, and for many of us, this is sort of a, a big, maybe, you know, kind of esoteric idea. But I want you to think about the glory of God. And, and what do you think about when you think about the glory of God? The prophet Isaiah will say this in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. He says, fear not. Why? Why should we fear not? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, he says. And he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you should not be burned. The flame will not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? Because you are precious to me. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Again, think this is the Lord, your Creator, looking at you saying, I, I'm, I'm keeping you safe. You don't have to be afraid because I love you. I made you. I'm for you. He says again, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I shall say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. And then hear this, church. This will be a good thing to underline if you're one of those people who wants to underline in your Bible. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. He created you. He created me. He created everything in this world for his glory. Let me, let me pray for us. God, um, we love you. God, I pray that you would help us um, as, as feeble, uh, flawed, and broken created things. That we would just get a glimpse of your glory that it would humble us, that it would encourage us, that it would burn away that, those sin and sinful thoughts and all the, all the ways that the enemy entangles us in our own messy lives and that we would fix our eyes on you and we would get a picture of that glory. And it would, it would shake us to our core. God, we love you. We know that you are a glorious God. We, we confess together this morning, this morning that all glory belongs to you. And so God, help us. Help us to be people who glorify you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we are, we are concluding a five-week series that we've been on. Today's the last one. It was over the five solas of the Reformation. The Reformation was a, was a movement, a religious movement uh, that was started 500 years ago this weekend, right? 500 years ago. And this was a, a protest against some of the, the abuses of power and unbiblical teaching of the Catholic Church at that time during the late Middle Ages. And when we say five solas, that's, that's a Latin word for the alones, the five alones, or the five onlys. And the confession was, this was sort of the, the battle cry in the confession of the reformers that said this, that scripture alone, scripture alone is the, the final authority for faith and life. It is the only thing where we have infallible and inerrant truth. We, we may find and discover and reason truth elsewhere, 
Our interpretations may be true, our tradition may be true, but only Scripture, Scripture alone, is perfect and without error. So that's the first alone. The second alone is that salvation is found in Christ alone. Not Christ or something else, not Christ and something else, but in Christ alone. And it's found uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. So it's not to our glory, it's not to anyone else's glory, but to the glory of God alone. Everything in this series has really been leading up to this point. We see that Scripture is God's Word, He gets the glory. Jesus is God in the flesh, He gets the glory. Faith is a gift from God. He gets the glory. Grace is an undeserved, unmerited, unattainable favor upon sinful people. He gets the glory. The glory of God is the goal of everything. The glory of God is the goal of everything. This doctrine that we'll talk about today, it is, it is the answer to the most fundamental question, which is essentially this, why am I here? What am I doing in this place? Why am I here? Why did God create me? Maybe some of you are thinking, if there is a God at all. I want to tell you this morning that you were created, and you were created for a very clear purpose, and this is the answer, that everything was created for the glory of God. There's a, a, the catechism, the Westminster Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is, what is our chief end? What are, what are we really about? What are we supposed to be doing in this life? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and then enjoy Him forever. We're supposed to live lives that glorify Him, and in that glory, we are enjoying His goodness. And not only, not only mankind, and this is from Scripture from beginning to end, that, that, that everything points to the glory of the Creator. But not just people, you hear me? Everything. Everything in the universe that God has made. I remember when my kids were, were little, we used to go over the small children's catechism with them. I, I know some of you guys use that with your kids. Um, the, the, those sets of questions start like this. Who made you? And the answer is, God made me. The second question is, what else did God make? And the answer, of course, is, God made all things. And then the third question, which is very critical, why did God make all things? If God made me, if God made you, if God made everything in this universe, why? Why did he make us? And the answer, of course, is for his own glory. We are not here in this life just to make money. We are not here in this life just to raise happy and healthy children. We are not here in this place to just... Um, get all of the experience out of this life in the short time that we're here. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We are here, my chief end, your chief end, the chief end of everything that is created is to bring glory to the creator, to, to reflect and to radiate God's glory in everything else. Paul says in the book of Romans, you know, Paul spends, the book of Romans is one of the most um, comprehensive 
um, books on the doctrine of salvation. And it goes into the, the doctrine of man and sin and grace and, and salvation by faith alone, salvation in Christ alone. And he spends the first, the, the first 11 chapters really like building this solid foundational theology. And it's, it feels in some ways very technical and very detailed, very systematic. And then at the, at the end of chapter 11, it's almost like he just breaks out into song. So if you can imagine reading, reading a theology textbook for 11 chapters, and then right there at the end, he just breaks out in song, and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So as, as, he's, as he's laying out this doctrine revealed to him by God, given to us by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, he just says, who, who can even imagine this? We, we are the creation. He is the creator. His wisdom, his, can you even consider his riches, his wisdom, his knowledge? It can, it's hard for us to even comprehend his judgment. And his ways are inscrutable. We can't pass judgment on what God chooses to do. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God's not looking for advice from you, by the way. He says, who has given him a gift that he should repay him? The obvious answer is no one. God needs nothing from us. God takes nothing from us. God is the giver of all good things. And then Paul says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This is why everything was created. To bring glory to God. Everything is leading to God's glory. Let me go back to that passage in Isaiah. This is a beautiful passage. He says, he says I am the Lord. I created you, so fear not. Don't be afraid, he says. I, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You're going to walk through these waters. You're going to be burned by these flames. But don't be afraid. He knows that that's what we need to hear, right? We need to hear... Fear not, don't be afraid, I am with you, I am present with you, I am the Lord your God, I, I gave Egypt as your ransom, you are precious to me, you are honored, God says I love you, so don't be afraid, don't be afraid, I am with you, I've called you by name, you whom I created for my glory. Now there's a progression here, right, as you read that passage there's a progression here we see first that God uh, and this is important for us God knows that we're afraid God knows that we need to be reminded not to be afraid God knows that we need to be reminded that we're not alone he says don't be afraid because I'm with you I made you I redeemed you I'm with you we, we are his he, are, he purchased us but why why did he do that in fact, why create us at all? If God doesn't need us, if no one can give God a gift, if none of us can add to God, why did God create us? Why did he save us at all? Why did he promise to be with us? And the answer, of course, is there in verse 7. For his own glory. For his own glory. God knows that we f are afraid and when we feel that things are falling apart, when things are unraveling, when things are not going as we would hope them to go, when we, when we get afraid because we can't see the future and none of us can, he, he reorients us. 
And he, he takes our eyes off of our circumstances. He takes our eyes off of ourself. He takes our eyes off of, off, off of all the things that seem to be going wrong. And he reorients our attention onto his face. He says, this is why I made you for my own glory. So don't be afraid. God says, I, have, I created you. Hear this, church, please. I created you, God says, for something greater and more pleasurable than ease. He is anticipating the waters. He is anticipating the fire. And he's saying, I created you something for something better than that. I created you for something better than just walking through this life unharmed. I created you, in fact, for my own glory. And I will use everything for my own glory. Even when we mess things up, God says, I'm going to use that for my own glory. This is the end goal of everything. Now before we get too far, I want to ask this question. What does that mean? Because that feels like a very theological way to talk, right? What does, it, what does it mean to glorify God? I heard one writer put it this way. What does it mean to glorify God in a very non-glorious time? And that's the way this life feels most of the time, right? This doesn't feel very glorious. When we talk about the glory of God, apart from just our response to it, we're talking about, as one writer put it, the, the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth, right? So it's, it's this expression outward of what is there inside God, His beauty, His greatness, His, his perfection. Glory is not one of God's attributes, right? It's, it's, the, it's the cumulative, necessary glow of all of his attributes. God, is, God alone is eternal. God alone is perfectly good. God alone is fully gracious. God alone is holy. Only God cannot change. Only God is perfect love. Only God is fully righteous and sovereign. God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and yet, in His mercy, in His grace, he is, also, um, he is also personal and knowable. And He brings us in to, to be a part of His family. The glory of God is the experience and the radiance of all who God is. One, one, one writer put it this way, it is the Godness of God. And it's something we don't have and it's something we don't deserve, and it's something that we can't have because we're not God. It's His Godness. That's what we talk about when we talk about God's glory. So how do we reflect that back? If we're called to glorify God, how do we, how do we reflect that back in our lives? How do we do it? Now I think, you know, for many of us, for many of us we reduce worship maybe, we reduce glory to what happens on a Sunday morning, right? That's even some of the language that we use, that we are worshiping God this morning. And we are. This is a great, this is an important place to do it. That is the, the central focus of our time together collectively. But let's not make it smaller than that. Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, probably many of you know this passage. Paul says to the church, look, whatever you do, whatever you do, right, whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do to the glory of God, right? That means everything. That means our secret attitudes in our hearts. That means our friendship with our spouse. That means the way we speak to our children. 
That means whether we're having a, a, a nice glass of wine or eating a well-prepared steak or watching a baseball game, that everything that we're doing is to, is to tell the story about how good God is to us. That in everything, in everything, in everything, we are to glorify God. One writer put it this way, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in such a way that reflects God's greatness, that makes much of God, that gives evidence to God's supreme goodness, the goodness of all of his attributes, his all-satisfying beauty. So I want to ask you, church, this morning, in, in what ways does your life shout about how good God is? In what ways does your life rest in God, God's attributes? Does it, we used that phrase last week, wallow in God's attributes. In what way does it reflect back to the world how good and perfect and beautiful God is? In what ways? I remember hearing an illustration from uh, pastor, writer, uh, John Piper. This was literally 20 years ago. I think it was in 97. And I heard him use this illustration. Um, he talked about the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Right? Maybe some of you have heard this illustration. So a microscope, a microscope takes something very small, right, like a cell or a virus or the intricacies of the created world. It takes something very small and makes it visible to us, right? It puts it on display. It makes it discernible. But a telescope, what does a telescope do? A telescope takes something very, very big. Planets. Distant stars, galaxies that are millions of light years away, and it takes those things that are very, very big, almost unimaginably big, and it makes those discernible to us, to real people. That's what we do when we glorify God. We don't, it's, not, it's not microscopic. We're not trying to make God bigger than he is. It's telescopic that we are trying to take something that is so overwhelmingly good, overwhelmingly perfect, overwhelmingly grand, the godness of God, and to show that to real people in real places in real ways. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, especially in a fallen world. Ask yourself, in... What, what does this word that I'm saying, what does it say about how I think about God? Or about how I feel about God? What does this behavior say about how I think about God? What does this attitude, what does this purchase, what does this experience say about how I think about God and how I feel about God? You know, many of us, not me, many of you, uh, especially Houstonians, have been uh, caught up this week in the World Series, right? I'm just not a baseball guy, so. Now, as I'm thinking about that, and I'm sorry about last night. I know it was a bad night last night, right? The Dodgers tied it up. Um, I know that we're all praying very hard for God to show favor on his favorite team and to crush the godless Dodgers in this series, right? I know that's what we're praying for. Maybe we need to take a moment right now and to say that prayer. Now, as I'm, I, you know, we went, to the, we went to the downtown last night, uh, did the costume contest with the kids. We went and watched the baseball game. And I was thinking, you know, if you, if you want to see, see what glory looks like, if you want to see what glory looks like, go, go to a bar in downtown Houston tonight 
Or maybe Tuesday or maybe Wednesday, we'll, we'll see if they're in game seven. Go, go to somewhere to watch this, these people, watch this game. The people will love their team. And they'll want everyone to love their team, right? They will be shouting about their team. They will spend money on their team. They will reorder their schedules around their team, right? Everything for this week gets thought about in terms of their team. They will get emotional about their team. They'll stay loyal to their team. Their thoughts will be dominated by their team. That's what glory looks like. I'm not saying that's a bad thing for the baseball game. I'm just saying, think about how you, re, how you react to that and how, how your life may translate that affection and that love and that, that thoughtfulness of God that you reflect His attributes. In what way does that come across in your life when whatever you do, whether you're working a job, whether you're taking a test, whether you're making a bed, whether you're, whether you're studying or reading, or driving, in what way are you glorifying? Because that's what God's, God demands from us, and that's what we were created for. I saw an article earlier this week. The title of this article is, um, Is God a Megalomaniac? Is God obsessed with his own ego? Because God does demand all worship, God does demand all glory, and if we were to demand all worship, and if we were to demand all glory, well, it would be foolish, right? We don't deserve it. We would be obsessed with our own egos. We would be against the charge of being a megalomaniac, but not God. Not God. God does demand all worship. God does demand all glory. But he, unlike us, he should and he must demand all glory. Do you hear that, church? God should and he must, for our good, demand all glory. You see, if I demanded all glory, the writer said in this article, if I sought all worship, I'd be wrong. Because I am not where your greatest happiness can be found. If I, for example, said, church, glorify me, that's where you will be most happy, I would be lying to you. I would, that's an evil thing for me to do. That's an untruthful thing for me to do. But not when God does it. I would also be distracting you from the one thing, the one person whose beauty can make you supremely happy. God himself and all that he's done for us in Christ. The writer continues, but, but if God walks into the room, if God walks into the room and says, I came so that you would worship me, so that you would glorify me, so that you would find your greatest happiness in me, he would not be wrong, and he would not be unloving. In fact, demanding all glory from us is the most loving thing that he can do for us. When God demands that your whole life reflect God's glory, it's the most loving thing he can do for us. The writer goes on to say this, God is the only source of deep and eternal happiness 
The, the scripture says in Psalm 16, In your presence, O Lord, that's where is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it would not be distracting for God to say, Worship me, glorify me, that will make you deeply and permanently happy. Instead, he is giving us, by demanding that worship, the surest way to lasting joy. You will only be happy when you glorify God, when you reflect his glory. Everything else is a cheap substitute. And he knows that. So he says, look, whatever you do, it should be reflecting how good I am, not how good or smart or thoughtful you are. Everything in this life, everything in this world, the goal of everything is to glorify me, not because he's an egomaniac, but because he loves you. And he says, you will, you will get most happy. You will have most joy. Your, your joy will be most lasting and deepest. When you glorify me with everything that you do. God demands all glory and God demands all worship because he loves us. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, he has a commentary on the Psalms. And C.S. Lewis, he talks about, you know, he says, I, I, this, he says, the world rings with praise, right? The world rings with praise. So, so we all praise all kinds of things, right? We, we praise music. We praise writers and filmmakers. We praise restaurants and food. We praise sports teams. We, we praise mountaintops and oceans and sunsets, right? We, we praise with those. We praise those things. We're thankful for those things. Those are beautiful things. C.S. Lewis says the world rings with praise. And he says, I wonder why that is. And he writes this. This, is, this, is, this helped me see this. He says, I think we delight to praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the joy is not complete, is not complete until it is expressed in praise. You guys see that? He says, why do we praise things that we love? Why do we praise the things that we love? It's because in praising them, we get more joy from the thing that we love, right? And so C.S. Lewis there, I think, very rightly, very truthfully is saying that we are, of course we are called to praise our God, our Creator, the Lord and Savior of our lives, and the only one deserving of that glory, because He is the only one who can fully and eternally satisfy you and you will not get that eternal satisfaction and that lasting joy without glorifying him he says it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are but it's, it's because that delight is incomplete until it is expressed one writer put it this way God seeks our worship not because it meets his needs but because it meets our needs. We were made for it. We've got this big, God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. We were made to enjoy God, to know God, to love God, to serve God, to worship God. That is, to enjoy to the max and to, and to overflow with admiration over what is most admirable in this universe. God. If you are glorifying in anything else, you are exchanging that deepest joy for very fleeting happiness. 
Guys, God says, if you want to be anchored, if you want to, if you want to fulfill the life that you were called to, if you want to, if you don't want to, if you want to work against the brokenness that sin has caused in us, live a life in whatever you do, every little thing. Think about it in terms, feel about it in terms, act about it in terms of how good God is. Of how faithful He is to you, how generous He is to you. God does everything for God's glory. And He demands that we do everything for God's glory. Not because He's a megalomaniac, not because He's obsessed with his own ego, but because he loves us supremely. This is what we were made for. Our joy will never be complete until we find our joy ultimately in him. One of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine, bishop and early church father in North Africa, he says, our hearts are restless. We are restless until we finally find rest in you, O God. Church, our hearts are restless until they find rest in the Lord. Let me close with this passage. It's Psalm 150. The final psalm in the songbook of the scripture says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with, with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and the dance. See, Trevor, where was that tambourine this morning, bro? We missed it. We, we missed an opportunity on that one. Praise Him with the tambourine. Praise Him with dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, crashing cymbals. Let everything, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.